podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. Well, good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to be sharing a few thoughts with you around this uh, uh, timely topic, thank you, of uh, racial justice. It's, it's uh, perpetually timely. It's consistently timely because the world is structured um, around inequality and around exclusion. And even in the UK, we've done some work with uh, uh, the Cabinet Office, done some work with Downing Street, we've done some work with the Mayor's Office in London, uh, around what they call inequalities in society. And so we know that there are, there's data, there's evidence to demonstrate that. So it's not even a point of, of, um, that we can contest. And we know that those inequalities are disproportionately located within certain communities that mean those communities are um, prevented from accessing all the benefits of the society in which they live in. And um, so we know that. The challenge is how do we think about that theologically? How do we think about that uh, from scripture? How do we think about that in a way that is, um, in a way that doesn't leave people feeling disenfranchised or feeling um, Let's say, yeah, disenfranchised because they're, they're, they're kind of dis- disabled through the process of, of guilt and shame. And guilt and shame are, are two powerful narratives, sub-narratives to the whole issue of inequality and that whole issue of racial justice. There's a big piece of research that's been done over many years by a lady called Brené Brown. You may know her, her writing. She wrote a very fantastic book called Daring Greatly, and she talked about the power of shame, and she said that when we feel shame, then we practice um, what she uh, calls withdrawal. And then, uh, well, first we practice comparison, then we practice withdrawal. That we feel a sense of shame, we start to compare ourselves, we feel more shame, and then we withdraw ourselves from the situation. She's a sociologist. I began to think about that theologically. I think it's in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve uh, had a brilliant relationship with God. Adam and Eve sinned, uh, so we saw shame. Um, comparison, I was naked, uh, but now I'm, I was whole, but now I'm naked. And then we draw, they hid behind the bush. And I always say to people, one day I'm going to write a sermon called Conversations Behind the Bush, because I want to know what happened there. Because when Adam stepped out, he said to God, that woman, uh, the earlier chapters, yeah, he, he said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But the moment he got behind the bush, something, God caught them in the middle of a domestic argument. It's the first domestic argument in human history. And uh, I'm, I'm going to take poetic license. I'm going to write something about what happened behind the bush based on what Adam said when he appeared from behind the bush. But the reality is that we all feel a sense of shame. And uh, shame help, stops us really from addressing the issues that we really need to address as a result of uh, racial justice. I do a lot of work in different organizations. I'm gonna come to some scripture in a moment and we'll go quite deep in scripture, but I wanna just frame this so that you can really get a sense of where I'm coming from and what we're trying to do. I work in different organizations, uh, secular organizations, church-based organizations, some organizations that you would know as, uh, uh, as, as Christians or people that are familiar with the church world. Uh, looking at issues of racial justice, strategic management, issues of uh, talent management, and so on and so forth. A number of different operational and strategic issues that we work with them with as part of our team. And um, one of the things I used to do when I went into an organization, I used to attempt to help them to understand what 
the inequalities are in the society and within the organization that they, they belong to. I've stopped doing that now because um, I think most of us are fully aware of what the, the problems are in our society. I, I always ask a question, and you, you may not be able to answer, answer it, and perhaps that's, that's the point. I don't know if you remember where you were on the 13th of October, 2010. You may not. And normally at this point, I show a film if I'm working in an organization because on the 13th of October, 2010, something happened that was quite significant. There were Chilean miners, 33 Chilean miners that were stuck underground for 69 days. I think it was around about the 26th of August or something where there was a big problem. There was, a, there was an implosion underground and they, they were stuck there. And for two months, people didn't know, nearly people didn't know whether they were alive. It was a, it was a nightmare. Uh, that, mining, uh, that mine was owned by a company called the Escoban Primera Mining Company. Uh, if you do your research, you'd find out this, this company has a litany of offenses when it comes to health and safety. In 2010, the company was actually closed down because the authorities said, we're just not happy with the way you run your, um, you run your service because a miner was killed. Two subsequent miners were killed. In 2007, there was an explosion underground that killed a geologist. Um, when they investigated what the problem of uh, the, the mining company was, in particular how this mine, how, did there, how did the mine collapsed, it was very interesting. They said that the company had reported a crack in the single entry and exit point of the mine. So there was only one entry and exit point and no, no uh, other facility to extricate people if there was a problem. And there was a, a crack that was literally the, the, the width of a finger. And um, the company ignored it. And they kept ignoring it until the point where the crack continually expanded until the whole um, mine collapsed. And the researchers who were interrogating what happened said that the problem at the mine wasn't just health and safety, the problem was what they call willful blindness. Now anybody who's in law would know what willful blindness is. Willful blindness in law is, uh, is when you know something's happening but you don't take any action, you act as if it's not happening, or if you have reasonable doubt about the good practices around a particular thing. So the bar in law is, is placed very low for willful blindness, but the language is absolutely brilliant. If you get the opportunity, I don't want to bore you with it, but um, it, it's, it's very interesting. And I want to suggest that what happens in most organizations and even in churches is that we're willfully blind around the issue of race and around the issue of racism. I did a big review for a national denomination and um, every single white person I spoke to in the denomination who was a member said that they had never seen an incident of racism. When I spoke to white leaders, they said actually, not only have I seen incidences of racism, I've had explicitly racist comments made about people of color, black, Asian, and African within the organization. So the only conclusion one can come to is that the, the English people within the organization were being willfully blind. And it's, it's what happens around this issue because it's so emotive, people don't want to face 
faced the issue of discrimination. Now, you will know the story of Amy Cooper. You may know it. Amy Cooper was the lady who was in Central Park and called the police on a guy called Gerald Cooper. This story is very significant for a number of reasons. The first reason is this. When I'm doing training, I ask people, do you remember the date of Amy Cooper's uh, interface with Gerald Cooper? And they say, we think it happened in February or March. Uh, so we get dates, and I say to them, no, it actually happened on the 25th of May. What else happened on the 25th of May? George Floyd was killed. So what you've got, and, and see this, and we paste the videos together, what you've got is in the morning, Amy Cooper calling the police on Gerald Cooper, an African-American male in Central Park. You remember the history of Central Park and the five young black men that were arrested for the rape, arrested and jailed for the rape of uh, an Ameri a white American lady. It came out in a film called When They See Us. So what you have here is a history, a social history of suspicion and a social history of the assumption of guilt around black presence in Central Park. So there's a pathology uh, that is deeply rooted in the psyche of white Americans around black Americans in Central Park based on this unresolved murder of this white lady. So here is Amy Cooper, who's being politely asked by Gerald Cooper, who's an African-American male, to please keep her dog on a leash. Uh, she gets so upset, she calls the police. She then says to the police, there's an African-American male who is threatening me. Uh, I, I, you can see the video online. What's interesting with Amy Cooper is this. Most people just look at the video. Because I do a lot of training in organizations, I do research. Amy Cooper is a, is a renowned Democrat. She's a human rights and she's a civil rights activist. She also donates to organizations that want to accelerate the inclusion of black people. But when she was in Central Park confronted with an African-American man who is uh, inverting the social assumptions of blackness being subservient to whiteness, she suddenly develops this narrative where she's able to weaponize race in order to put this guy in a very precarious situation. So, you know the New York police, um, I'm not gonna make any comments about them because we're not here to defame anybody, but the New York police, because of what's happened in Central Park, are hypersensitive around interfaces between African-American men and white women. So what was due to happen is that the police were due to come and Gerald was due to be arrested. But for some reason, they didn't turn up and you can go and read about the rest uh, online. But what is very interesting to me, later on in the day, we have the story of George Floyd, who goes to, just goes to a shop to buy something. And uh, before you know it, the police come, and the story is history, as they say. George Floyd is killed. So what was meant to happen didn't happen in the case of Amy Cooper, what wasn't supposed to happen happened in the case of George Floyd. So it's almost like George Floyd is the final expression of what could have happened to Gerald Cooper, but didn't, but ultimately happened uh, to George Floyd. It's very interesting because Amy Cooper 
would have had, and if you read the stuff about her and what people say about her, she, she would claim that she's into equality, she's into, she, you know, she's into uh, civil rights, she's into affirmative action and so on. But the moment the social status quo was challenged, she suddenly inverted her, pro, uh, her mindset and her narrative and began to weaponize race. And at that point, what Amy Cooper taught me, and nobody's been able to convince me otherwise, is that when white individuals claim that they don't understand race, it's often a way of opting out and not taking responsibility for the complex and nuanced understanding of race that they normally have. If you ever know a lady called Jane Elliott, she writes, uh, she does fantastic work. She's in a room full of white people, and don't worry about me using black and white. I'm not making any, uh, I'm not making any judgments. This is about consequences, not blame. So I want you to know that. She's in a room full of white people, and Jane, Jane Elliott does the blue eyes, blonde hair experiment. You can look at it online. And um, she's in a room full of white people, and she says to them, is there anyone in this room that would like to be treated the same way that African-American people are treated in, in our country? And nobody responds. She says, I'm really sorry. Sometimes I don't communicate effectively. I just want to communicate clearly. Is there any person in this room that wants to be treated in the same way that our country treats African-American people? She does it three times. And then she draws a simple conclusion that nobody contests. The conclusion is this. You don't respond because you understand how African-American people are being treated. But you collude with the silence because it means you've got to take some responsibility. And that's how we move from willful blindness and get to willful blindness. Because if we're not willfully blind, we have to take responsibility. Because fundamentally, racism and exclusion is a sin. And it's an act of violence against the image of God in the life of an individual. It's a consequence of the fall. And when we read the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 1 to 11, which is referred to theologically as primordial history, what we find is there are three themes that emerge. The first theme is what they call the, the, the theme of sin, mitigation, and judgment. God is righteous, and because he's righteous, when we sin, he has to exercise judgment. But actually, because God knows that we're human beings and we're frail, he looks for mitigating circumstances. And any of you go to court, like I do sometimes with some of the people that I work with, the judge will say, listen, what you did was unacceptable, but we've asked a report from the probation officer, and the probation officer says there were some extenuating circumstances in your life at the time that made you behave in that way. And therefore, we're going to apply mitigating circumstances to this case. You should get a custodial sentence, but what you'll get is a community-based sentence with a hefty fine. And so the mitigating circumstances allows the judge to make his judgment or her judgment based on the sin, the crime the individual has committed, but taking into consideration mitigating circumstances. So we see that through the book of Genesis, sin mitigation and judgment. Then we see another theme called the spread of sin and the spread of grace. And what we see is that as humanity sins, God responds with grace. So when Adam and Eve sin and they say they're naked, we're told that God clothes them with skin. And so God is responding gracefully 
to uh, Adam and Eve. But then there's a third theme, which is my favorite theme. And this, this narrative, this three-thronged approach, or three themes, is uh, developed by David Kleins in his book, The Theme of the Pentateuch. And he says that there is uh, the third theme, which I love, which is creation, uncreation, and recreation. And I'm summarizing it. He says, God creates a fantastic universe, a universe that when God sees it at the end of the day, he says, this is good. The Hebrew word for good is the word tuf. We'll come back to that in a minute. So God creates a perfect world. At the end of every step of creation, he says it's good, it's tuf. Adam and Eve sin. Sin brings into the world uncreation. Everything begins to fall apart. Remember, Adam and Eve says he's bone on my bone, flesh on my flesh. She's the hottest woman around. A few weeks later, that woman. Something's gone wrong. The ground is bringing forth lovely fruit. The next thing, it's got weeds. So there's a, there's a kind of relational breakdown that comes with uncreation. There's an ecological breakdown that comes with uncreation. There's so many dimensions to it. We can't even get into it now. But at that point in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that God promises that the seed, of, um, the seed will come and it will crush the head of the serpent, speaking of Christ prophetically. He said his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. And so what we see there is God beginning to talk about recreation. We also see this in the story of Noah. God creates the world. He uncreates the world through the flood and starts to recreate the world through covenant that he gives to Noah. It goes through the, through the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament picks up this theme of creation. So um, in, Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are created uh, from the foundation of the work, so that, from the world, so that we might be God's work, we're God's workmanship created before the foundation of the world, so that we might do good works. Very fascinating. I mean, this is exciting stuff. When you get to really come to terms with it, you don't want to be racist, or you don't want to be, um, uh, you don't want to be racist, exclusionary, and you don't want to be invoking responses in people that bring that response out of them. Paul writes to the Ephesians. It's the only New Testament book that has no controversy. They call it a non-polemical text. It's a fascinating piece of, of literature. Uh, one writer says Paul is caught up in the heavens in prison, and he begins to think about the ideal church, and so he writes the book of Ephesians. And he says, God has made us as individuals his workmanship before the foundation of the earth. The fascinating word there is a Greek word called poema. Now, what's interesting, a poem is what? A poem is a series of interconnected thoughts uh, through words. Now, we go back to the word good in the book of Hebrews. I mean, the book of Genesis, the Hebrew word good, tuv. It's, in Hebrew, there's no uh, inherent goodness. So your Mercedes-Benz is not a good car. Your BMW is not a good car. If you have a big house, it's not a good car. And if you have a lovely personality, you're not a good person. The only things that makes us good in Hebrew thinking is relationships. So when God says at the end of every day, the world looks good, he's saying the relationship between what I created yesterday and what I created today is exactly reflecting who I am. But when sin comes into the world, the relationship becomes uncreated. And there's polarization. And what God is attempting to do in Christ and this is what Pentecost is about. So we read about Babel in Genesis chapter 10, where God disperses the people and confuses the language. Theologians say that, ex uh, that 
Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of Babel, that God brings the world's tribes back into relationships with themselves, and he brings about reconciliation, and he brings about renewal in the lives of uh, the individuals. And so what we see in the book of Acts, and I'm going to share a few thoughts on Acts chapter 10 in a few moments. What we see in the book of Acts is the birth of the church, the growth of the church, and the expansion of the church. The birth of the church, the growth of the church, and the expansion of the church. Remember, the church is an integral part of God's cosmic project of regeneration. He says the, the servant's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. But the, the, ser- the, heads, the servant's heel is going to be bruised, speaking of Christ. So Christ comes, and according to Colossians, he breaks down every power and principality. Ephesians 2 says he removes the middle wall of petition between Jew, uh, Jew and Gentile, which is an archetypal representation of any division between male and female, able-bodied and less able-bodied, people with different sexualities and so on. Uh, he breaks those walls down so that people can be in tov relationship, so that they can recognize the divine image of God in each other. Don't always have to agree, but there's a healthy respect and a healthy harmony, a healthy togetherness. And so God calls us to do that through the body of Christ. And so in Ephesians 3.10, he says that God's plan now is that through us, we might see the many-sided wisdom of God. And so we can see, because that's what God tried to do in the beginning, In Genesis, he just put everything together so it was good, so that his wisdom is revealed through creation. That's what Paul tells us in Romans uh, chapter 1. And so God uses the church, particularly the early church, to say, listen, I've broken down the middle wall of petition between uh, Jew and Gentile, and therefore between male and female. Uh, This is Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 28 says, therefore, in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, and so on. And most people come back and say, well, that means I'm colorblind. I don't see your color. I don't see your gender. I say that's a, 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 a spurious interpretation of the text. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that these superficial and artificial social distinctions shouldn't polarize you from one another after Christ has redeemed you from that polarization. He's not saying that they don't exist. He said that they are fundamentally in existence. But if we allow the gospel of Christ to touch our hearts and our minds, the barriers that those differences bring will be dissipated and we'll be able to relate to one another in the image and in the likeness of God. And so we've got this fascinating story of Peter in Acts chapter 10. And uh, a lot has happened. Peter's an amazing guy. I mean, he's a lunatic, but he's an amazing guy. You can't trust him. You don't know what he's going to do next. You don't want to leave a knife around Peter because the crime statistic could go up. He's just, he's, 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 let's say he's spontaneous. Let's say that. That's the best way to describe him. In Acts chapter 2, everyone else is, Acts chapter 1, everyone's scared, intimidated. Peter says, now remember God gave us a prophetic word through the psalm. Psalmist says, when this person kills himself, we've got to replace the people, replace him with someone else. They cast lots and they get Matthias on board. That was Peter, genius. Everyone would have just been paralyzed by fear. But Peter had a kind of robust resilience and came back. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came, tremendous power. People were just from all over the world. Everyone was just getting carried away with speaking in tongues. Peter says, actually, maybe someone needs to preach here. Peter gets up and he preached. Thousands of people added to the church. Acts chapter 3, people are still empowered, but quite... Peter says, let's go to the temple. When he gets to the temple, he sees a man who's paralyzed. He says, no, I'm not having that. 
You've been there for too long. A silver and gold I don't have, but such I have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. They arrest Peter. They take him to the Sanhedrin. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. They have a conversation with him. They flogged him. He says, oh, well, it's cool. You can do that again. He says, I'm, I, I, I'm happy to be punished, to be considered worthy to receive punishment in the name of Christ. Brilliant. Acts chapter 5, we read the story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And then Acts chapter 6, everything is going well in the church. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 44 onwards, the church is in common, following the apostles' doctrine. Everyone's cool. Acts chapter 4, people are selling their possessions. And then Acts chapter 5 comes, and Ananias and Sapphira agree to deceive the Holy Spirit, and they, they drop dead. So we begin to see the perfect church beginning to have problems. Every perfect church will have problems in due course. And one of those problems will be centered in and located in the issue of race. Acts chapter 6, the issue comes to the fore. Now, what you have to realize is this. We've just read in Acts chapter 2, everyone was in common. Acts chapter 4, people were selling their goods. How comes you've got a problem in Acts chapter 6? Because it was always happening. But for the first four chapters or first five chapters of Acts, the disciples were willfully blind. The church was willfully blind. It was always a problem. But in Acts chapter 6, everyone who was the the butt end of the problem, got sick of having a problem and began to raise the issue. It wasn't something that just happened one Sunday morning. It had been happening for a long time. Some people couldn't see it because they didn't want to see it. Others saw it, but they didn't want to cause a disruption because the narrative was that everyone was in common and everything was going brilliantly. The first lesson we must learn is that there are different narratives for different people in the congregation. One of the things they say about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and then John, they say they're incoherent, they don't make sense, because they're eyewitness narratives from different perspectives. It makes complete sense to me. I've been in a meeting where someone said to me, that's an absolutely brilliant meeting, and I've said to them, no, there was lots of power playing going on in that meeting. We can both give an account of the same service at the same meeting with very different perspectives. And you can't negate one perspective over and above the other. And that's true when it comes to race. That actually what you might see as benign and acceptable may be an act of microaggression against an individual. And I say to people, listen, we like to use these these sanitized phrases, microaggression. You see, I would rather someone come up to me in the morning and punch me in the face the hardest they possibly can, knowing that they would never punch me in the face again. What I do not want is for someone to accidentally bang my head every morning, accidentally in quotes, and know that every morning they're going to do the same thing. Because the cumulative effect of that micro act of banging my head doesn't compare to the single act of someone punching me in the face with all the force and might that they possess. Microaggressions are not micro when you're consistently experiencing them. They become macroaggressions that actually people of color and we're talking race this morning, that's why I'm I'm sticking to that, because I often go into gender and disability and so on. Those aggressions are internalized, and people's humanity is brutalized. And so we see this story through the book of the Acts of the Apostle. We see that everything seems to be going well, and there's this problem with race, or with with difference in Acts chapter 6. And um, they resolve the issue. So you'd ask yourself the question, this is funny, isn't it? If all this stuff has been going on and God has been working so powerfully, you know the question I have to ask myself when I come to Acts chapter 10 is this. Is it possible to be a leader in the church, 
Is it possible to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, to be a pioneer in the church, and to be racist? That's the fundamental question we're confronted with in Acts chapter 10. Uh, there, it's around Jew and Gentile, but if we extrapolate that to our present context, that's the question we're asking. Is it possible that an individual can be filled with the Holy Spirit, pioneering ministries, prophetic, theologically sound, and still be racist? And what Acts chapter 10 tells us is yes, it's fundamentally true, it's possible. And therefore, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what do we do about it? What do we do when God comes to us and says, in the midst of all that you're doing, I still need to ask you a question about your heart when it comes to issues of race and it comes to issues of racism. When God says, I need to hold you accountable for your willful blindness. I need to hold you accountable for your collusion. Because what often happens in situations of race is not that people don't see it, but the cost of calling it out is so high that people tend to collude with the aggression. And actually, it doesn't work for us as a church that's meant to be a prophetic community that has the witness of the Holy Spirit about the equality of every person and every individual. So in Acts chapter 10, just a few thoughts The Apostle Peter goes up to pray um, in a room in Acts chapter 10, verse 9 through to verse 14. And we could spend all day on this stuff. It says about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large school sheep being let down to earth by its corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice came to him and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Do you know what's interesting? When God made the world in Genesis chapter 1, he said, let there be, and physical creation immediately responded to the sovereign voice of God. God spoke once, and the complex physical world, the physical universe that we have in place today, came into being because God spoke once and it responded. When it came to the issue of race and racism or difference, God spoke to Peter once, Peter wouldn't have it. Spoke to Peter twice, Peter wouldn't have it. It took God three direct comments, instructions, commands to speak to Peter about race and racism or difference before Peter responded. It tells us something about the endemic nature of racism in our psyche. It tells us how racism conditions us so deeply that we're blind to its very existence and we instinctively respond to any challenge against it. Now, we haven't got time to explore the history of racism because what we have here is Peter, who is a Jew, talking about a Gentile. And so what we're talking about, amongst other things, is a religious worldview, but also a cultural worldview. But what we're also talking about is a religious and a cultural worldview that's been overlaid by a spiritual worldview. And what's happening for Peter here is very interesting because uh, Peter's being unconsciously conditioned by what he's uh, been socialized into. And that's the same with most of us. We get unconsciously conditioned to what we're being socialized into. But what we're not often aware of 
is the impact that socialization has on other people, particularly if we're the predominant group. And Peter, because of their theological, if you want to put it, theological arrogance. Remember God said to Israel, I didn't call you because you're brilliant. I just called you randomly. Just to let them know that it wasn't because they were brilliant and smart. He said, I just called you randomly. But Peter and the Jewish community developed such an arrogance based on, remember, God was meant to heal the world through them. But actually what was happening, they were polarizing the world because of their particular perspectives. And God was saying, actually, that's, that's, that's not why I called you. That's not why I called you into so what had happened to Peter is that his culture, which is acceptable, had become subject to strongholds which were unacceptable. The same is true for us, that actually culture is acceptable. But when that culture becomes subject to spiritual strongholds that polarize people around difference of race, then actually we've got to take a prophetic stand against that. If you ever know about a theologian by the name of Walter Wink, he talks about naming the powers and engaging the powers and masking the powers. He's done the most extensive research on principalities and powers from an academic perspective. I don't agree with all he says, but he says something interesting. He says that he doesn't believe that powers and principalities are disembodied spirits. What he believes is that they are social models of hierarchy that lead to different types of exclusion. And he says we've got to name them, unmask them, and then we've got to engage them in order to bring them back into alignment with God's purpose. Many of you would have heard of William Temple. He was an Archbishop of Canterbury. And he says the task of the church is to find out God's purpose in every area of society and then to call society back into alignment with that purpose. The reality is that sometimes our culture is so conditioned by strongholds around difference and strongholds around superiority and so on, that actually the culture's all right, but when we let the enemy come in, the strongholds actually become antichrist. They become something that Christ cannot accept and Christ cannot endure. And that's why Paul says, we don't wrestle against uh, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And then he says in 2 Corinthians, then we take captive every thought and make it obedient. Uh, to the knowledge of God. And I always say to people, it's all right to have a very spiritual understanding of 2 Corinthians 10, in that we take, capt- you know, we, we, we rest, we, um, we, our weapons are, are not uh, carnal, but we rest, but our, they're mighty through God. There is a neurological dimension to what Paul is saying. He's saying that actually we get socialized into a culture, that culture causes certain types of activity in our brain, synaptic activity that causes neurons and dendrites to fuse together. They become neural pathways, and those neural pathways, the enemy takes advantage of them and conditions our thinking around superiority. So this is not just a spiritual thing. This is about actually the way we think physiologically and the neurology of our brain and how that then becomes a stronghold in our lives and prevents us from actually being individuals that can be inclusive and individuals that can be warm to others. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because he recognizes that there are cultural strongholds in all of our cultures that make us act in ways that are inconsistent with Christ. So Peter's on the roof. He's praying, and um, it's very interesting. You must ask yourself the question. That's how I read the scripture. Sorry, I read it very simply. I ask myself the question, why did God wait for Peter to be alone? Peter was on the roof, he got hungry, God started to speak to Peter. I think it's a very simple answer. I could be wrong. I'm not saying God spoke to me, never. But I think God waited for Peter when Peter was alone and when Peter was hungry because if he tried to talk to him with everyone else around, 
Such was the power of the collusion and such was the power of the assumption of the situation being normal, what sociologists call normative, that Peter wouldn't have been able to see what God was saying to him. So God waited till when Peter was alone, when Peter was hungry, and said to him, now, Peter, I want to ask you a question. Can you get up and eat? And Peter says, effectively, straight away, no. The first point I want to make, very simple, is this. If you want to deal with the issue of race and racism, you've got to get away with God and you've got to be alone. You've got to go up on your roof. You've got, to, you've, you've got to be inspired by something. Peter was hungry and God used his hunger to get him to engage with the issues. You've got to be inspired by something. If you try to deal with the issue of race and racism just as a community and just as a collective without seeking to take individual responsibility is going to be very difficult. I haven't got time to explore it, but there's a fantastic piece of research. Any of you that have studied psychology would know the research of a guy called Dr. Solomon Ask. And he did a very simple piece of research. He put two... Uh, pictures on the wall. One picture on the left had one line. The second picture on the right had three lines. He asked a group of students which picture on the right hand side matches the picture on the right on the left hand side. The student said line B. He said brilliant. He walked out the class, recruited some actors, came back and actresses. He said look I want to ask you the same question. Which picture on the left hand side matches the picture on the right hand side? Because there was more actors and actresses in the class than there were students, uh, they said it was line C. The students immediately remonstrated and said it's 9B. So he left them to argue about it. He came back later and he said, which pictures on the right-hand side matches the picture on the left-hand side? Everyone in the class said it was line C, even though they knew it was line B. And it was an experiment in social conformity. The reality is that if we try to deal with the issue of race just as a group of people, without taking time to be on, in the, on the roof with God alone, the power of conformity and social expectation and collusion will prevent us from being able to get to terms with the big issues that God wants to deal with us. God had to deal with Peter alone. This is a communal issue, but communal issues are about individuals. And this is what I do when I go into organizations. I say, well, it's policy. It's the way we do it. I say, well, let's get this. Let's. Institutions are made up of individuals, and individuals either choose to reinforce institutional rules or to transform them. The fact that you're not willing to do anything about the issue of inequality in your society, inequality in your community, inequality in your organization, means that you voted in favor of it. Because the institution is not some arbitrary thing. It's made of individuals like you and I. And we've got to make choices. And that's what was happening here. God had to get Peter, who was the leader of the pack, away from everybody and challenge Peter as a leader. And in challenging Peter, he could challenge the rest of the community. The critical question is not whether Peter, not whether Peter knows he's racist or, diff or prejudicial, if you want to put it that way. The critical question is how will Peter respond? And that's the question that we're faced with today. It's not whether we know or we don't know. It's that when we get to know, how do we respond? What is our response to God's call on our lives? So that's the first point. I'm going to do quick, two quick points. The second one comes from second, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 19 to 21. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Peter, three men are looking for you. Um, please go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them. I'm going to close in a minute. Um, the second point is this. Peter was still thinking about the vision. You've got to think about what I say today, not just agree or disagree. Peter had the vision, then he went away and began to think about it. 
You only change, and I only change, in my prejudices when I spend time with God thinking about what God has already spoken to me about. It's a process. It's cumulative impact and cumulative effect. Because of time, I'm going to leave that there. The, second, the third point I want to make is this. The first point, you need to be alone. The second point, you need to keep thinking. You need to keep engaging with the issues. I need to. As a black man, I often find myself, uh, because of some of the, the social conditioning I've had, I often find myself exercising sexist or androcentric mindsets. And I have to ask questions. My dad was disabled. He had a stroke. But I sometimes find myself unconsciously prejudicing it. My prejudicial in my attitude against people who have different disabilities to different other cultural groups. We, I am not immune from this. It's something that we all have to do in different ways and for different reasons. So, spend time alone with God. That's the first one. Secondly, after you spend time alone with God, keep thinking about the issue. Then the third thing that we need to do is recognize that often our defensiveness is an indication of our collusion. When God said to Peter, Peter, get up and eat, Peter remonstrated with God. That was a clear sign that Peter was guilty. And then God had to navigate with him. One of the things I look out for is how well do people receive what you've got to say? If someone starts to remonstrate, I'd say they're not ready for it because they're defending the privilege that they know that they have. Remember we started with willful blindness and Amy Cooper. What we have to learn to do is be alone with God. Then we have to learn to really be in a place where we think about what God is doing and then we have to be in a place where we have to manage our disposition towards being defensive about what we feel when it comes to race. Let's pray. Father, we've said a lot. Your spirit's been listening. Your spirit's been working in different ways. Uh, We just ask you to take what belongs to us and to land it in our spirits and what doesn't, just to wash it away. Lord, we're not expecting a revival of reformation, but we are asking you to change our hearts that little bit more. So that when we leave this place, um, we are more conformed to your image in the issue of race and racism than we were when we first arrived. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.